All right, um, I want to get started. And uh, boy, the, the music today was on point for what we're talking about. Because if we are going to follow Jesus, when he speaks, we have to listen. <laughs> and when he tells us to go, we have to guess what? I, I was, as I was listening to them rehearse earlier this morning, I thought, you know what we ought to do? We ought to do honest Christian hymns. You know, it would not be a, that could be a thing. I don't think anybody else is doing it. And so we'll, we, the, our lyrics could be something like, when you speak, I'll ignore you, right? <laughs> and where you lead, I'll go where I want to go on my own without you, right? I, so clearly I'm not a singer. Um, but in all honesty, many of the songs we sing don't necessarily match up to what our lives look like. Now, the point of today is not to give us a big guilt trip, <laughs> I'm guilty of that in my own life, in which I look at, sometimes he says something, and I'm like, God, I don't understand about that. Right? He tells me to go somewhere, God, you, it's going to take a lot, it's going to take a lot of sacrifice to go there. But I have found that when we honestly live into what God is calling us to, that is where true life is. So today what I want to talk to you about is just a continuation of our series on being empowered. I believe the church should be empowered. I believe many churches live life powerless. I want to be one of those. I believe that God gives his power where he chooses. That power comes through the Holy Spirit. But there is a hidden piece to this. It's not hidden. It's very well documented in scripture, but we don't live it out that I want to talk with you about today. So part of being empowered and following Jesus means that our lives are going to be messy because Jesus was a messy Messiah. He made, people, he made more people mad than he made happy. He made more people walk away than would be willing to follow. And if we're going to follow Jesus, then we ourselves are going to be messy too. So as we go through this, I just want you to know this can be a difficult conversation. But this is what I believe is an important conversation. And I'm going to do my very best to communicate it in a way that's helpful and not hurtful. So far where we've been in our series of being empowered is we have to, we started off, have a big faith. If we only trust God that the most menial tasks of life will happen, then we are not encouraging him to do anything that's great around us. When he does do something great, we miss it. So we have to have a big faith. We talked about recharging when we feel empty and powerless, which we all will feel at one time if we don't feel that way now. And there is a way for us to build and to recharge. We talked about biblical generosity. God empowers those who are generous, both emotionally, physically, with our finances and our resources. God empowers that. It is better to give than to receive. Most of us will spend our lives trying to get as much as we can. Jesus says, Listen, spend your life trying to give away as much as you can. And God will empower that. We live in a culture that just tells us to keep and hang on as close as we can for ourselves. And I believe that's one of the reasons that we live without power, because God empowers generosity. I do want to just applaud you. And I, I, I always have to be careful when I do this, you know, not to applaud you. I mean, I don't want to be careful when I applaud you. But um, I encourage you that, that just financially we needed, we needed to... Uh, we just need to be more generous as a church family for us to continue in this space. And you guys really responded. But I want to encourage you that, guess what? Next month, the same bills are due. 
So let us continue to be generous, but let us also be wise and good stewards. And I will tell you, our leadership is, is constantly talking, and especially right now, about how can we be good stewards of this and uh, some things that we'll share with you in, in the coming weeks. And I think God is working in some incredible ways, but it's going to require some things for us. Um, and that is not go build a, a building, by the way. Some of you are thinking, he's going to say, we're going to go build a building. <laughs> no, we're not. Um, but um, there are some other things that are happening. I just can't share them with you yet, but I will soon. Uh, Scott talked about powerful words. Sometimes the way God empowers us are through the words we use. We can be prophetic. At times, our words can come back and attack us, especially when those deny the source of where those words came from. When we speak the words of Jesus, there are going to be those that are empowered. There are going to be those that hate us. Words have power. We need to be careful how we use them. Last week, we talked about being a contributor, and that was not just uh, financially. We talked primarily about being a spiritual contributor within the world. Go out and do things for others. So we live in a world that says you're a consumer. Every message that you are bombarded with daily says you need more, get more, take more. What you had was not enough. You need more. And Jesus consistently said, no, go and give, go and give, go and give. I cannot emphasize enough the correlation between the empowering of God and the giving of ourselves. If we're not giving of ourselves, God is not going to empower us in order to take for ourselves. That is not the experience of Jesus. That is not what he called us to, and that is not what he wants from us. Today, I want to talk to you about some ways that God empowers, and what I think is one of the biggest roadblocks that is most evident that scripture tells us we are supposed to be, but we in general are not. I believe we are working towards it, and we are growing in this area, but we are not, and that is in the area of unity, the area of getting along with each other, the ability for us to live life with each other, God empowers where he wills. It is not for us to go to God. There are some faith traditions that believe you go to God and tell him what he should do. God, I'm claiming this. Therefore, since I'm claiming it, you've told me if I claim it, you'll give it to me. Therefore, you must do that which I have claimed or that which I have told you to do. And I will tell you this. If I can throw a temper tantrum and move the hand of God, then that is not the God I'm going to follow, right? But many of us live our lives that way, thinking, I'm going to pray specifically for one thing, and I want God to work in this one way, where that is not the model of prayer that we have. We pray in which God would change us, mold us. We do bring our cares and our needs to Him, but we understand that He may tell us something that we aren't wanting to hear, because God ultimately works off of His will, and not mine or yours, which is good, because can you imagine what would happen if God took directions from all of us? Wow, that would be exciting. (laughs) Nothing would happen. Nothing would get done. No one would know what to believe. We would have so many different facets of what Christianity is. No one would know which was the true one. But you know what? Isn't that somewhat of a picture of where the church is today? We have so many sects of Christianity, and we don't know what to believe. We don't know what, what to think. We have one group that it is pushing in one direction, another pushing in another direction. Two churches will look at each other and say the other is not truly a church. We fight and we argue over things that don't matter. We are not united. We are maybe united as an individual congregation. But are we united with a bigger body of Christ? I believe that this is one of the primary reasons that the church is struggling today is because we have forgotten the commands and instructions of Jesus that we are to be unified. 
Now, there are lots of reasons why we are unified, and I certainly can't go into all of them today, and there are those that call themselves Christians I would not align myself with. with. But it has nothing to do with the way they take communion. It has nothing to do with whether they baptize by dunking you under until you, you know, need another breath of air or sprinkling you. That's not for me going to break whether or not I'm in fellowship with you. If you believe that Jesus is the son of God, that he was born of the Virgin Mary, if you believe that he gave his life for us, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he got down off the cross, well, didn't by himself, but yet he did come out of the tomb raised by God, and that if we believe in him and we have faith in him and we trust in him, that we can spend an eternity with him in heaven, then I can have fellowship with you. Even if you sing different songs, use different types of music, you wear different kinds of clothes, even if we don't agree on every little interpretation of scripture, even if there are some big interpretations of scripture that we do not agree on, we can have fellowship together. But that has not been the way of the church for the last several hundred years. Now, we can go back and do a history lesson about how we got here, and that's not really our purpose today, although I think it would be exciting. I'm not sure you would. But this didn't happen overnight. In fact, the majority of the church's history from the time of Christ has been embedded in this warring against each other. Yet Jesus told us we're to be united. One of the early things I learned as a follower of Jesus is if I'm going to experience the presence and power of Christ, I have to be united in purpose with him. When he says something, I need to do it. When scripture says, clearly, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus, then I must do those things. And if I do not do them, I am myself withdrawing from the power of Christ. Now, that does not mean that if you are not doing every single thing in scripture that you know to do, that you do not have a relationship with Christ. I'm not going to that degree. But I am saying you will not experience the fullness of the working of Christ in your life if you are not obedient to the teachings of Christ. It will not happen. And some of the teachings of Christ are hard. Some of the teachings of Christ sever relationships. Some of the teachings of Christ make us very uncomfortable with other people, or at least make them uncomfortable with us. Is it supposed to be that way? In part, I don't know that you can get away from it. But no, it is not supposed to be that way. So what is it supposed to be? Well, let's look at a couple of places. We're going to look at one in which uh, Jesus is talking, one in which Paul is talking, and they're both saying something very similar. But I want us to be focused on this idea of unity. I want us to recognize that God empowers whoever he wants to empower for what his will is. What I do believe about this group and this room is that you want to be empowered by God. It's possible you're here today thinking, I don't want that. I don't know why you're here if you don't want that. But it is possible you don't want that. But I would say that most, if not every single person in this room, wants to be empowered by God. If someone were to walk up to you and say, do you want God to empower you? Would anyone really say, no, I don't think so. I'm doing okay on my own. I don't think so. So what if it means we need to change something about us? to experience this within our lives? What if our lack of unity is keeping a key piece of empowerment from us? Now, when I talk about unity, I'm not just talking about the church. I'm talking about with other believers. I'm talking about our relationships with people. When we first started a journey, we knew it would be messy. We knew that befriending and going after people that did not love Jesus and did not want to be a part of the church would become very messy. And over time, it has become messy. Those conversations 
are not easy conversations to have. If we are going to be the following of Jesus in which he called us to be, we are going to have the same experience that Jesus experienced, and that is a mixed response. We will get messy. We will form relationships with people. Others say, you shouldn't do that. Times people will walk away. I've been accused more than once of not being a real pastor. (laughs) Our church has been accused more than once of not being a real church. I always wear those as a little badge of honor. I don't know. That's part of the rebellious streak in me. I'm like, you darn tootin', you know. I don't want to say that to him. That's not appropriate. But I think it. <laughs> if we're going to be the church, it's a radical idea that we just need to follow Jesus. One of the problems is that when we say we want to follow Jesus, that means nothing to so many people. It's just a word or a phrase that we use. I'm following Jesus. What does that mean? I go to church. What does that mean? Well, I mean, I get up and go to church. (laughs) That's not following Jesus. That's getting up and going to church. And if you don't see that there's a difference there, we need to have another conversation later. Those are not the same thing. If we're going to follow Jesus, it's going to bring us into a place that's going to change us forever. This idea of unity is something that we ourselves are bred not to believe in. I read a study this week about individualism within the world. And two psychological scientists, I didn't know there was such a thing, but I think it's cool. I might, might want to be one. Psychological scientist took 51 years of data covering 78 countries for a world values survey. What do people in the world value and what are the differences between nations in the world? And what they came to with there were a few nations that were hyper, hyper community focused and a few nations that were hyper individualistic focused. Who do you think America is? You don't think we're community focused? Well, they didn't think so either. (laughs) In fact, we ranked highest of all nations on their scale of individualism. Individualism being, I'm in this by myself. I'm doing this on my own. I'm getting mine. If I can help you and it doesn't cost me anything, I might. But I got to take care of me. Interesting, some of the conclusions that they came to. So there's a quote. In general, individualistic cultures tend to conceive of people as self-directed and autonomous. You're just on your own. They tend to prioritize independence and uniqueness as cultural values. Collectivist cultures, on the other hand, tend to see people as connected with others and embedded in a broader social context. As such, they tend to emphasize interdependence, family relationships, and social conformity. Interesting. One of these sounds very much like the church, and one of these don't. See, it would be a radical concept for us today to say that the church should be interdependent on other churches. That would be a radical concept. Now, there are networks, there are partnerships, there are denominations, but even those primarily are meant to separate, not bring together. Here's our crew, y'all stay out. Collectivist thinking says we need each other, we're in relationships with each other, and we are conforming to a similar image. That, to me, sounds like the teaching of the New Testament. So what does it look like for us 
that we are in, we are steeped in this from the moment we are born. That you are on your own. You have to do it on your own. We bring that into the church. Because the church is a microcosm in some ways of what the larger culture is teaching us unless we are informed by Scripture and the Holy Spirit changes our minds. The problem with individualism is that when whatever happens, good or bad, it's your fault. If something good happens, well, it was all me. If something bad happens, uh, it was all you. I mean, that's kind of what we do, but internally, that's not how it works. Internally, if something bad happens, it was all me too. We take all the credit and we take all the blame. We're doing it all on our own. Individualism, excuse me, individualism says, I have to do this alone, not with other people. My failure is my fault. Now, the way that we defend ourselves against always taking the fault for failure is we do blame the system. Well, if the system wasn't set up like this, then this is not how I would be living my life. But a collectivist or a community-focused group of people would change the way they respond. Just like my failure is my fault, my success is my fault. The reality is, is that I don't have time for yours because I'm too busy making sure I have all of mine. Now, interestingly, what they found was economic development or socioeconomic development. In other words, when a population begins to make more money, individualism increases, not decreases. So in other words, the more you have, whereas some of us who would think, you know, the more I have, the more I can give. And in general, the way the world works naturally in people is that the more I have, then the more I have to protect. The more I get, the more I have to make sure I maintain. We learned early on the, the financial principle that whenever you get a raise, if you don't put it to some kind of investment, whether it be savings, retirement, or giving to others, you will, your lifestyle will rise to your level of earning, but it cannot return. In other words, you get a big raise one year. Let's say you bring in $5,000 more a year, and some of you are thinking, well, that's not a big raise. And some of you are thinking, I haven't had that much of a raise in the last 10 years. But let's say you get a $5,000 raise and now you've got Netflix and now you've got Hulu and you've got Comcast and you've got the coolest new phone with the greatest features, with the greatest service and the greatest data. And you got to make sure that you've got Exterminator getting all the bugs killed at your house. And you know what? We now have season passes to Graceland. I don't know if any of you have season passes to Graceland or not, but if you had too much money, you would. And then you lose your $5,000 all of a sudden. And the company's having problems. We're not able to continue to pay you what we're paying you. We're going to have to cut you back to where you were before the raise. You would not be able to do it based on most people. Because socioeconomic development pushes individualism. I take it all for me. It's tied into that consumer mindset which drives a market system, which is the world in which you and I live in every day. Now, I love the market system. I believe in the market system, but you have to have discipline within this system. You can't just believe every message you hear and spend your money on every new thing that comes out. You have to be focused and disciplined and have purpose. Because socioeconomic development, what it actually does is say, I need to protect more. 
more you get, I need to protect more. I need to live in a gated community. I need to keep people out from my house. I need to make sure nobody comes around. I need to make sure my house is in immaculate condition. And the more that you take care of yours, the more you step away from everyone else. So this is the problem with a gospel that says God wants to bless you with plenty of money. (laughs) Because there's no statistic anywhere that demonstrates that more money leads to looking more like Jesus. It does not mean that if you have money that you cannot look like Jesus, but it means if you hold on to all of it, you can't look like Jesus. As we've said before, much of the history of Jesus walking with his disciples was written because people underwrote their ability to do ministry. They didn't just walk around and ask for food everywhere they went. They did have generous providers that were helping them. But we have to be disciplined in the way that we look at those things. See, individualism is a problem, but it's leaked not just in the culture, but it's leaked into the church. I grew up a Baptist. One of the key beliefs in in, in Baptist theology is the autonomy of the local church. And that is your church is independent, individualistic, away from everyone else. We'll have a loose affiliation with others. But you are your own thing. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. That is not the way of Jesus. I'm not saying all Baptists are bad by any means. But I am saying that the way that we view individualism is killing the church. It will kill us. We come in, we get our stuff, and we leave. I've got my experience. I go. Hopefully, I won't have to talk to anybody. Right? You ever have those moments? I mean, I do. I have those moments. There are times I walk into a big room and I'm like, oh, I've got to talk. I've got to talk to people. Now, some of you are great at that. You're so good at talking to other people, and I just, I'm amazed at you. The idea of living life without community is like the worst thought you could possibly have. Some of us would be fine if we never saw another person on the planet ever. (laughs) Don't raise your hand or say amen, but some of you are them. It's like, Okay, I'm walking down the hall. I, if I see, I'll have to talk. Let's go this way. You know, it's, that's how you live your life. That's how you live your life. You know, they may think it's because they have bad breath or something. No, it's just because they have a heartbeat. I mean, and you don't want to tell them that. You have a heartbeat, which means that your brain's working, which means that you're going to want to have some kind of meaningful communication with me, and I'm just not up for it right now. I get that some of us are made different. But what if our lack of unity is keeping a key piece of empowerment from us? Jesus instructed us to be concerned for, as concerned for others as we are for ourselves. When asked what is the most important commandment, the first was what? Love God. Second was? Love thy neighbor. That's right. He said, literally, you could be okay, because he said the second is like it. Love God and love others. How? As yourself. Now, we sometimes say love others more than yourself, but literally what he says is love, love others as yourself, which, let's be honest, is still quite a bit. Still quite a bit. Put them on equal pairing with you. Love them as much as you love yourself. So the greatest commandment is we have something deeper between us than the average person in the world does. We should. We should. See, a lot of times we don't get the gospel wrong. 
I can probably walk up to you and say, could you just tell me what the gospel is? I mean, if you know John 3.16, you can at least get a good stab at it, right? But I, I don't know if you've been watching, but we are seeing a sweeping revival across our nation. Now, if you're a student of Scripture, you would say, well, I wouldn't expect to necessarily see that. We pray for it. We want to see it, but I wouldn't necessarily experience it. But what if God did want to reverse the, nation, the course of a nation in order to follow Him? What if our problem is not that we don't get the gospel? What if the piece of the gospel that is key to being empowered is missing in us? What if our unity is supposed to be part of the message? And the fact that we are not unified as the larger church demonstrates some of the lack of power that the gospel has in the world. Because if Jesus said, people will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another, and then we don't love one another, perhaps they don't really believe we're disciples. It's been said time and time again. I can love Jesus, just not his followers. Well, I get that. Some of us are a tough pill to swallow, myself included. But Jesus loved us. The point was not that we would be homogenous. The point was not that we would all look alike, that we would all talk alike, that we would all do the same things. In fact, Paul spends a lot of time talking about all of the variety in which God works within us. But we are in some way supposed to be unified. So how do we understand that and how do we... How do we look at that? Let's look at John chapter 17. This is, this is Jesus speaking. This is what we call the high priestly prayer. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. In other words, this prayer is not just for those who are with me now, but all those who would follow me from now into the future. Verse 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me. And I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. There is this interesting transfer of character, power, and glory when we are connected to someone to this degree. Jesus and the Father share this reality. They share this experience. They share this relationship. Jesus himself, while equal to God the Father, says, but I have received my glory from you. Now, let this glory pass to them as they are in us, just as we are together. Now, unless you sit around reading the Bible all the time, you're probably wondering, what's he talking about? Let's keep going. I will get to that. <laughs> no, wouldn't that be good? You're probably wondering what that means. So let's just move on. Um, that's not a good way to preach. Don't do that when you all preach. I in them, you in me, they may become perfectly what? Perfectly denominated, right? Perfectly separate. Perfectly one's better than the other. Perfectly different. Be perfectly one so that... So there's a purpose in this oneness. And it is not so we sit around and go, we are one. Like we should have a new song that we sing like Kumbaya all together. We are one. I don't know. There probably is one. Purpose is not so we sit around and go, look, we are one. 
so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. There is a purpose in our unity and it is not just so we can do more stuff. Our message becomes more powerful when we are united because they see that we have actually been changed by the message. And this should be one of the most powerful indicators that we are following Jesus in this country that is so rooted in individualism. Because these people are doing what nobody does. They're united. We call ourselves the United States of America, and yet I don't know that anybody can pay attention to what's going on in our nation and feel that we're united. Just because we use the word doesn't mean anything. Are we living it out? John 13, 35, he says it a different way. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, let me just say, this is a side. We'll talk about this another time. We don't have time today. When he says your love for one another, sometimes Christians believe it is our love for everybody, that we love everybody the same, not what Jesus is saying. Jesus says your love for one another. Now, it does not mean that we don't need to love other people. Without love, the gospel is truly powerless. But what Jesus is specifically saying is the way you love each other, that matters. Now, the problem that we have today is that nobody can agree on a definition of love, much less Christians, non-Christians, anybody. In general, the definition of love that is used in our culture is you let me do whatever I want to do. I'll let you do whatever you want to do. And we just won't hurt each other. But if we do, I get my way first. That's the definition of love in our culture. Jesus gave a definition of love that said this. God demonstrated his love for them by what? Do you remember? And dying for us. No greater love is this that a man does what? Yeah, catching on. So love itself is communicating the beauty of what Jesus has done for us, that he came for us, that he died for us. And if we want to most perfectly demonstrate that love to others, then that means that we ourselves are willing to die for the betterment of others. So love itself is all bound up in the gospel. Not in how we feel. Not in how we make others feel. Because here's the thing. We can make other people feel good and they not know Jesus ever. And then have we truly loved them? No, we haven't. Not my book. Not when our goal, our calling is to let people know, Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. He's coming back for you. We're going to live in eternity with him forever. So we've got to understand what love is. For us, part of that, us loving each other, is continually living in the reality that Jesus has come for us. Continually living in the place where we're giving ourselves for each other. Continually looking for the needs of others and saying, I can do that. I can be there for you. And when you have needs, someone comes along and says, I can do that. I can be there for you. But ultimately, it is still all about the gospel. See, we talk about the gospel, but do we live it out? If we're not living in unity, we're not fully living out the gospel. It raises a lot of problems, doesn't it? Because we don't like some people as much as others, right? Some people actually make us mad. We kind of wish they didn't exist, but we don't say that. 
Because that wouldn't be Christian. But in our heart, we think it and we feel it. And whether we recognize it or not, we do act on it. What would it look like for you to be united with all of your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, if they agree with me, I think it would be great. <laughs> what, if, what if we don't agree? You know, I think it's interesting that the disciples at times argued. Do you think that's interesting? I think it's interesting. I like that kind of stuff. It just reminds me that we're not as terrible as some people like to make us out to be. At least we're just like them. Sometimes they argued and didn't like each other. Paul and Peter, they threw down in front of each other. It was pretty interesting. You want to see, you know, we just kind of put these apostles, we, we paint them on churches and, and make statues of them, and they're all so nice and generous and kind, and yet Paul got right up in Peter's face and was like, I'm about to take you out. It's not exactly his wording, but if he lived in the South, that's what he would have said. That's what he would have said. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. You have love for one another. Let me ask you a question. If we are following the same God, why do we disagree so much? This has always been a concern for me. Now, I do believe that some disagreement is biblical. You know, one of the reasons is because the problem with individualism, and especially when it invades the church, is that you have a blind spot. In fact, you probably have many blind spots. My spiritual gift, primary one, is prophecy. Now, slow your roll. Some of you are wanting to know when Jesus is coming back. That is not what the gift of prophecy is, okay? I don't know it, and I do not know what the next lotto numbers are. However, the gift of prophecy is focused primarily on telling truth. I need to tell you what is right. Now, this is a dangerous gift. And as a pastor friend of mine used to say, there's a reason they killed the prophets in the Old Testament. (laughs) Number one, you sure better be sure that you're right if you're going to proclaim that you are. Now, you won't always be, so you sure better be good at saying when you're wrong. (laughs) My just natural tendency is to want to walk in a situation, listen to a conversation, and then straighten everybody up. That's what I want to do. So when you want to come talk to me about something, understand if I don't do that, I am exercising restraint because that is my natural tendency. Now I have a blind spot. My blind spot is compassion. See, most people with the gift of prophecy don't typically have compassion. I'm like, this is the truth, and I, I don't care if it kills you. It's the truth. You know, that's not really a good way to respond to anybody. I'll just tell you right now. But I know some really compassionate people. And it has taken a long time for me to learn from those compassionate people how to be compassionate to others. See, compassion can be a blind spot to me, and there's a lot of pastors who love truth, and they have no compassion, and we see it. And they tell everybody who's wrong, everybody who's bad, that is not the way of Jesus. We all have blind spots. This is the the picture of a body working together. This is where Paul really shines when he talks about how we are so individual and, and the way that God works, and yet he has designed us to not be islands among ourselves, but to come together and work together, and we complete each other and not in a bad romantic film way but in a way that actually changes the world we complete each other see for me 
Sometimes I need to come alongside the compassion personality to say, listen, I know that you really want them to feel better, but you are telling them things not true. And I need them to come by and say, you know, I know you believe this is true, but if you don't have compassion, you're going to push them away from Jesus. See, if we all, if we all had the gift of prophecy, we would sit around arguing all the time. Unless we all agreed, and then we would sit around patting each other on the back all the time. We all have blind spots. One of the ways and one of the reasons that I believe that we are not experiencing the power of God in the church today is because we have ignored our blind spots. And we are not fulfilling the calling of the church as it was given to us. Our unity is supposed to be part of our message If we are unified, why do we disagree so much? Some of it is because we have different perspectives. They're not necessarily wrong. It's just incomplete. And when we're all together and we're all fully following Jesus, which let's be honest, is I don't, if we were going to give it a percentage of time that I'm fully following Jesus, I would be embarrassed to tell you what percentage that would be. So it's not like we just always are this way, but if we were, then we would recognize you've got a piece that I'm missing. Your piece matters. My piece matters. The pieces together make a whole, a bigger picture. I never would have seen on my own. I needed you to help me see it. Wise followers of Jesus will seek out other people that see the world differently. Not to argue and not to make them see the world the same way they do, but to complete the picture. That's what unity does. See, the world, the way the world works is it persecutes anybody. Anybody that doesn't see the world exactly like they do, see it my way or I will vilify you rather than we all have a piece of the picture. Now, certainly there are times that we are to speak out against injustice, oppression, falsehood, anyone that is trying to change the gospel. There are times we have to, st- we have to stand up. It can't just be a, a love fest where we all sit around and go, oh, this is so wonderful. We just love each other. Everything's so perfect. There are times that we have to stand up against those things that are just terrible and wrong and hurt the gospel and hurt others. So let's go back to our question. This is really what I want to spend the rest of our time with, and we're going to go through this kind of quickly. But Jesus prayed that we would be one as he and the Father are one. What does it mean that Jesus and the Father are one? And this is not an exhaustive uh, explanation, but this, I think, fits us today and is you know, pretty solid. Number one, Jesus and the Father are equals. Now, depending on your tradition, Jesus fulfills a different place in the Trinity. God's like the head honcho, and then you've got Jesus and the Holy Spirit are just kind of his lackeys, and they go out and do whatever he says with no power of their own. The Scripture does not communicate that. God, The Godhead three in one, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, God the Father are all equals. The Holy Spirit and Jesus have chosen to limit themselves to do the will of the father which is still equal to jesus and the holy spirit which makes it more complicated in your trinitarian theology and that now even the three pieces don't make sense because they're all the same it's all one god and we have tried every different way in order to communicate what does the trinity really look like in today's language and today's understanding of reality and every one of them falls short But they were equals. 
What Jesus is praying for is that they will have what we have. They are equals. Not that we would be equal with them, but we'll get back to that in a minute. Jesus and the Father are equals. Jesus and the Father also had the same purpose. The same purpose. They were always working in tandem, always working together, always working for the same purpose. If Jesus had a different idea than God, he always submitted to God's idea of purpose. And interesting, I know, messes up your whole Trinitarian theology, but that is what we see in Scripture. Jesus and the Father also shared the same message consistently. In Acts 1.8, that's passed on to us. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. That power is given to us for a purpose that we would witness to what Jesus has done. If our lives, if we cannot point to time that we are being witnesses to what Jesus has done, I will tell you now we are not following Jesus. I know the world's complicated. I know the world is hard. I know people disagree with us. If we are never witnesses of Jesus and what he has done within our lives, something is terribly, terribly wrong. Some people would say, well, I don't, I'm not good enough. Well, join the club. He's called us to this anyways, and he's not called us to tell us how great we are apart from him. He's called to tell us what Jesus has done in our lives. We all should have a testimony for that if we're following him. Interestingly, Jesus and the Father had different roles. They're one, but they had different roles. And whenever there was a difference, which is hard to understand why there would, but if Jesus was unsure, like when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane saying... If this cup can be taken from me, let it go. I'm just not sure I can do this. And yet he submitted and said, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus submitted to the leadership of the Father. This is what it looks like for Jesus and the Father to be one. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul talks about it like this. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk in in a way that you are living out what God is telling you. And I don't mean on Sunday mornings. I mean seven days a week. Walk in a way that is worthy. See, our unity is meant to have a purpose. Our calling is meant to have a purpose. The message is meant to have a purpose in the world, not something we just sit on and we try to get through the world. Some of us are trying to survive the world, and it's understandable. The, thing, the stresses and pressures that we're under are overwhelming, and we feel we're going to be crushed at any moment. I, I want you to know that is not the way Jesus wants you to live. However, there are times that Jesus leads you exactly into that kind of a life because that is when we are most open to learning something. If you're going through a time of stress, if you're going through a time of suffering, if you're going through a time when you're just constantly saying, God, please help me, please deliver me. God, I can't take this anymore. Understand he may have put you there because he's going to teach you something you would never have learned anywhere else. My experience is I learn the most when I am struggling, when things are going well. I don't really want to learn anything. I just want things to continue the way they are. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then he describes how. (laughs) With all humility. Gentleness. With patience. Bearing with one another in love. Eager 
eager, oh, I love that word, eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then he gives this formational statement just to why do we do this? Verse 4, there is one body, one spirit. You are called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There's one. I was in seminary. We, I, it was one of my favorite jobs I ever had other than the fact that you never made any money. That wasn't a lot of fun, but it was my favorite job. I mowed grass. It was great. No, I won't come mow your grass. I mean, I might if you're infirmed or laid up or something, but that wouldn't be good for you either. But I love to mow grass you know, because somebody's thinking he loves to mow grass. I got a solution for you. That's not well, the solution I'm looking for. But I'm also a perfectionist, which some in this room like to point out. I'm just not a very good, perf- you know, a good perfectionist actually makes perfect things. I'm a perfectionist, just not a good one, because nothing I do is perfect. But when you're mowing lawns, one of the things that points, you know, differentiates the little neighborhood boy that goes and does it for a cup of lemonade and 10 bucks and a true professional like me is how straight your lines are and whether or not every other line you approach in a different direction because that causes the grass to lay down in a different way. If you don't know what I'm talking about, watch any baseball game anywhere and you'll see what I'm talking about. The real pros know how to lay down some lines. That would be me. (laughs) At least a few years ago. I can't do it now. I just want the grass cut to be done, right? But then I really cared Except I was terrible at it. (laughs) Until I learned a secret. If you look right in the front of your mower while you're mowing, you will go all over the place. But you got to look towards the end of the row. You got to see what's going on at the end of the row. And it's amazing when you see at the end of the row how it draws you into a straight line. I got pretty good at it. I learned a life lesson in the process. You have to keep your eyes fixed on something farther down the road if you are going to maintain your path. For us, it is on that one Lord, that one calling, that one hope, that one joy, that one faith. We have to keep our eyes fixed on that so that while we are all all over the place, we are being drawn to the same place. But he follows that statement up with where we are today, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. In other words, but you still are all different. This is the most beautiful thing God has done in humanity is to create diversity within it. And yet something where deep inside of us, what we want is everyone to look the same, dress the same, talk the same, act the same. And Paul is even saying after this is all about God, there's one God. He is saying, listen, but you guys are all different. He's going to go on and he's going to talk about spiritual gifts. We're not going to do that today. So if we look at what Jesus, how Jesus and the Father are one, how are we ourselves to be one? And I think we can say, because Jesus is saying, let be with them so that they will be as we are, not that we'll be equal to Jesus, but how are we to be one? Well, we are equals. This is one of the problems in the church, is we are not equals in the church, are we? 
And this is part of the way we structure because we, the church often functions the way any other business would function, which is not what Jesus intended. And that is that the pastor is better than others. Now, you all know me. No, that's not true. You all who know me know, know me well. No, that's really not true. But the picture of the church has always been that we are equals. Equals. Just as Jesus and God are equals, we are equals. Not a one of us is more important. Not a one of us is better. God does not want to love a one of us more. We are equals. Just as Jesus and the Father are equals. Just like Jesus and the Father, we should have the same purpose. Now, there are different levels of purpose, right? Our big purpose is we want to know Jesus, to become like Christ, and to lead others to do the same. But we all do that differently based on our jobs, our careers, our gifting, what we're good at, what we're not good at, the people we're living around that we have the most impact on. We may go about our purpose differently, and God may have individual callings, but they will all fall under this one. We're united in purpose. Just as Jesus and the Father had the same message, we will have the same message. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. We have the same message. Now there are lots of messages we can have today. I want to encourage you that there is no more important message than this one. And if you're heralding the mess, any other message more than this one, you're your priorities are out of alignment. But even though we have the same purpose, and we share the same message, just like Jesus and the Father had different roles, we have different roles. Now, I've joked with Herman the last couple of times he's worn this shirt. The shirt that Herman's wearing in the Caribbean is called a preaching shirt. And I've told him one Sunday, I'm just going to say, okay, when he wears it, I'm going to say, okay, Herman, it's your time. Today's your time. He's warned me more than once it will not turn out well for anybody if that happens. But he's wearing a preaching shirt. It may happen. It may happen. We all have different roles. And we need to fully live within those roles. Just like Jesus submitted to the leadership of the Father, we should submit to the leadership of Christ. This is what we call Christ-likeness. Becoming more like Christ. And just as Paul mentioned, and Jesus personified, it means living life humbly and in humility. All right, I want to, I've got a couple more scriptures, but I'm only going to read one. All right, Philippians 2, let's skip that one and let's go to the next one, Philippians 2 verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, all of these things, talking about unity, talking about having all these same things together, understand that this is um, the mindset that we have in Christ Jesus. This is where Jesus will lead us to. This is where we're supposed to go with this. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Which is an interesting, an interesting concept we need to break down later. But we can take from that, we are not called to be equal with God either. Verse 7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So let me wrap this up. By saying I believe one of the reasons the church is, is, is acting as it's, if it's powerless in, in the world today, at least here, is because we have separated ourselves and we are building our own kingdoms. This is not the way of Jesus. Now, they had separate churches that met in the New Testament, just like we have separate churches that meet now. Theirs primarily in homes, us, and all kinds of campuses all over the place. And yet there was a unity among them. Even the leadership among those early churches was different than how we operate today. There was one church. Every house church had elders that kind of made sure we're staying true to the teachings of Jesus. Every city had its own set of elders over all of the churches in that city. And then those elders would all answer to the elders in Jerusalem, the original apostles to which we ourselves do not have any equivalency today. We don't have that today. But they themselves would then answer there. There was a connection of unity and accountability all the way back to the early church in Jerusalem. That's why we ultimately moved to an elder-led model here. Because when we read in Scripture how the church should be structured, that's the way the church was structured. It doesn't mean that if you don't have elders in a church, you're not a real church. But that's why we chose to go that route. There's a unity that should be among us. I believe many of us, if not all of us, are great at communicating the basics of the gospel. But what if our lack of unity with others is actually hurting the gospel? How would we repair that? Other than reaching out. Overlooking the things that don't matter that are different from us. Celebrating the things that unite us. Now, I do want to say that whenever we read about this kind of unity, he is talking primarily, specifically, and really only about the church. We're not supposed to have the same relationship with every person on the planet. We're talking about believers here. However, when a a group of people recognizes the value of contributing community, they recognize the value of spreading that out beyond the walls of the church. 
The way we respond to others is not one of shaming and one of guilt, one of oppression and one of hurt, one of judgment and one of beating you down till you look just like me. It's one of love, welcoming, and acceptance. Don't believe the lie that our nation teaches us that you either agree with me on everything or we have nothing to do with each other. We can agree on what we agree and have compassion for the rest. We do not have to agree on everything. But we must have compassion for others. If there's no other example that you can point to for this, I would say, well, look to Jesus. Because this is the example he gave us. So as I close today, let us be united in purpose. Let us be united in calling. United in spirit. United in action. And let us be united in love. If we begin to approach relationships in life in this way, I believe many of us will experience more of the power of Christ than we do now. Because we will be fulfilling what Christ instructed us from the beginning. Father, thank you that you are slow to wrath, abounding in mercy and grace. I pray that you would lead us to a place that we more perfectly represent what it looks like to love others as you did. I pray that we would be welcoming a community of people that are here for others. I pray that you would give us the internal emotional strength in order to disagree with someone and yet still love them. I pray that we would be the church you envisioned that you instructed, and that you called us to be. We live in a world that doesn't value those things, and, and honestly, many of our churches don't even value those things. And for that, we repent. I pray that you would move among us in a way that we are connected and united with those around us. That we strengthen those who are different from us. I pray for difficult conversations in which we don't agree that we would be able to be filled with grace and mercy to recognize that someone in this conversation needs to grow. It may be us. It may be them. It can always be us. We can always grow. Father, I pray that we would stay true to your teachings, stay true to your calling, stay Stay true to your purpose. But I pray that we would love well. I pray we will not be tempted to love in a way that gains the approval of people that do not know you nor love you. But instead we would love in a way that communicates and demonstrates the way you have loved us. That you sent Christ to die for us. Because there is something bigger than every other issue on the planet. And that is... We will all stand before you one day and answer for our lives. I thank you for the gift of Jesus because otherwise we would fail. We would be judged. We would be found guilty and we would be sentenced. But Jesus took our sentence. 
let us follow him faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.